The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. The first epistle to John, chapter 4, the first epistle of John, I should say, uh, chapter 4. And I'd like to continue our study of living in wisdom, and we are discussing using wisdom in our daily decisions in our walk with the Lord. And in the first of these lessons, we discussed personal decisions, being careful to discern the difference between right and wrong with moral questions, and evaluating, evaluating every situation that we're in in order to determine that the way we choose is the way God would have us to go. And as we grow in holiness and we continue to read and study God's Word and we're in prayer, we become better equipped to make the right kind of choices. And eventually, we gain enough experience in this that we decide the right way almost as an automatic response. We have a code that we live by and we recognize when things are wrong and we're going to live by our code and so we reject things that aren't good for us. A person who's mature in the faith is able to choose the right way by comparing situations to the Word of God and then applying uh, the Bible uh, correctly to those situations. Now, in this part of the lesson, what I'd like to do for, for us to do is to step into another area, speaking more particularly about maturing Christians. And we talked about personal decision using discernment and wisdom in those but now we want to just get a little bit more technical with things and talk some about making the right decisions about doctrine. And in this text of 1 John, John addresses the duty of Christians to learn doctrine and to discern who's telling the truth about the Scriptures. And so we have to be careful, as he says in verse number 1 of the text, try the spirits whether they, or rather he says, many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, we look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 1. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the Apostle Paul says here, try the spirits to see whether they are of God. Now in our previous lesson, we learned that every doctrine is influenced by a spirit. And it's interesting the way that John states this as he talks about the pervasiveness of false prophets. And uh, the false prophet spews out his teachings, but what he teaches is not really the product of his own mind. But there is a spirit that is behind that teaching. And uh, he's influenced by that spirit that puts the words into his mouth that he speaks. 
Well, there are only two types of spirit that are spirits that are in the world. Uh, either the Holy Spirit is the teacher of a doctrine or Satan is the teacher of the doctrine. And the messenger is only an extension of the spirit that uh, is behind that doctrine. So in that way, John uses the spirit to be equated with the teacher. So those who teach truth are spirits of truth and those who speak error are spirits of error. And it's important for us to recognize that, that every doctrine out there is attributable to one of these two spirits. Either it's of God or it's of Satan. And what John does here, he's not shy at all to say when a spirit comes from Satan, when it's an evil spirit that's behind that doctrine. And I think what he's teaching us is we ought not to shy away from it either. We ought not to be afraid to say that much of what's being taught in churches today is straight from the Father of lies. Now, when you first get saved, the difference between these two spirits can be difficult to discern. That's because Satan is very good at deceiving people. As you know, the word says that he appears as an angel of light, so he very easily fools people. And so John puts us on guard here that we need to be very careful about the preachers and teachers that we listen to just because a person says that he's been led by the Spirit of God, that he's teaching the right thing, doesn't necessarily mean that he's teaching the right thing. Now, when you're a newbie to the faith, uh, you're vulnerable. And what you first hear when you become a Christian can often shape your doctrine for the rest of your life. I remember stories that my dad used to tell about when he first got saved. Uh, he was saved in a revival meeting uh, in a little farming community out in the middle of Kansas. And I think it's safe to say that there weren't any theological giants on the farm. In fact, the preacher that he was listening to in this revival message or uh, revival that he went to, the preacher was a cousin of his who had been saved and not saved for a very long time. And so my father went to the revival meeting to hear his cousin preach because they simply could not believe that this fellow that he ran around with and they did all the same things. He could not believe that he had become a preacher. So he went to the revival meeting to sit there and make fun of him while he preached. And that's what he did for the entire service. He made fun of him. And it wasn't until after the service that the preacher's wife sat down with him and led him to the Lord. Now, uh, I might mention this, that he didn't walk an aisle. He didn't kneel at an altar. He didn't shake the preacher's hand. But he was saved after the service was over. Now, for sure, he didn't know very much about the Bible. He didn't know anything about Bible doctrine. Uh, the preacher didn't know a whole lot more because he hadn't been saved for very long either. And so right after my dad made a profession of faith, he got mixed up with some Wesleyan Methodist. Well, that wouldn't be too, too big of a thing today since uh, most Baptists have more Methodist doctrine, it seems, in them than it does, they do historic Baptist doctrine. But in any case, he got mixed up with them and he became persuaded towards a more Arminian theology. And then a little while after he was saved, God called him to preach. And he realized that he didn't know very much, so he needed to go to school to get some training. So he heard about a school in Lexington, Kentucky, and he sold the farm in Kansas, and he moved to Kentucky. And the school that he chose to go to was a, an historic Baptist school that believed the doctrines of grace. Now, when my dad first heard those teachings, he was very, very strongly resistant to them because he had been mixed up with these Methodist, and uh, 
his early Christian life had been shaped by what they had taught him. And so when he heard the doctrines of God's grace, he resisted those and he wanted to turn away from them. But as he listened more and he began to study that and learn that and he was willing to be taught, uh, the doctrines of God's grace began to penetrate his heart. And then from that point he was set and he was entrenched in this other doctrine that the Baptists were teaching in that school. Now, if you understand that story, you understand a little bit about why I am the way that I am, because I was influenced by my father's teaching. I grew up uh, in a household where he taught these things and in churches where he, they, uh, we taught these things. And so I was taught the doctrines of grace from a very young age. But the point here is that he always thanked God for uh, the school that he went to to help him to reach this understanding because he said if he had stayed in Kansas, as far as looking at his man sees it, if he'd stayed in Kansas that he would have made a, uh, believed a very different doctrine. He might even have been a Methodist. And I also thank God that that didn't happen too because if it did, you'd probably hear me preach much different doctrine. And those of you that are now convinced about the doctrines of grace, I think you would probably be happy about that too. That uh, he, uh, because I, I followed that line, you know, so uh, it's a good thing that uh, he got switched around on those things. But the point is, as I said, you can be shaped by what you first hear. And if the doctrine isn't right, you can be entrenched in the wrong teachings. Now, we love our pastors. We love our teachers. We trust them uh, implicitly. Sometimes we're not willing to listen to anything else because we've heard this. We believe that. And we're not even willing to open up the scriptures any longer to explore anything that's different. Now, you, you might say to me after hearing this, well, if you would just open up your mind a little bit and you would listen to something else, then you wouldn't believe what you believe. Well, I actually have done that. I have opened up to read and study the other side of this. And uh, after examining the arguments, I've not found them to be what the scriptures teach. And I've had more than 40 years of experience in in these doctrines and learning them, when those that are opposed to us most of the time have very, very little exposure to the things that we teach here. So we're the ones that are open, they're probably not. But this is the reason that you find saved people in many different denominations. You find them among Methodists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals and so on. They know enough to be saved, but they were taught wrongly on other doctrines, and that's quite frankly, why they're not Baptist. Now, you can see why John would give such a stern warning here. Um, wrong doctrine squelches spiritual development, and when it's rooted very deeply in a person, it's hard to get that doctrine out. Now, what, what John addresses in this particular chapter is soul-damning doctrine. And we're going to get to that just a little bit later. Uh, but in our last lesson, we discussed the possibility of being saved and yet being in error on some doctrines. And so we talked about the degrees of error. Uh, some doctrinal errors are worse than others. Uh, there is a good error, but there are some that are worse than others. Uh, for example, my dad was saved and he would have stayed saved if he'd stayed with the Methodist. He still would have been saved. I tend to think that uh, as studious as he was, he would have come out of that eventually. He would have learned differently. But there are doctrines that we can disagree on, and they're not going to affect our salvation. There are even doctrines that we disagree on that are not going to affect our fellowship, even being in the same church. Uh, they're not serious enough that we can't coexist with one another. And what I really do believe is there is not a reason 
for uh, harsh incivility that characterizes some Baptists, that what they think about us and what they think about me in particular. Uh, I, I have another pastor friend who doesn't believe the doctrines of grace. And uh, he, one of his mentors was dismayed to find out that he was friends of mine. And he said, I could never do that. He said, I could never be friends with a person who teaches the doctrines of grace. Well, I can tell you that I don't have such feelings towards them. I, I don't have those kinds of feelings towards Baptists that disagree with me on this subject. I'm not going to be nasty about it. I think that they're wrong. And uh, I'd be stern in my assertion that they are wrong, but I don't have any ill feelings towards them. I think they're wrong, but I don't think that the error that they hold falls into the category of just outright uh, outright heresy. Their misunderstandings, I think, are for unfortunate because I don't think that they'll ever come to an understanding of God's grace in the way that we do to be as appreciative of it as we are unless they finally open up their minds to this truth. But their error is not an error that would keep somebody from being saved because they still do believe that a person is saved by God's grace alone. I mean, grace is in there. You can't be saved any other way than by God's grace. But they're in error, and I don't think the error is serious enough to say that their churches aren't true churches. Uh, I don't think it's serious enough to say people can't be saved if they go to a church like that and sit under that teaching. Again, they teach salvation by grace through faith alone. And anybody who teaches that, people are going to be saved when they hear it. So people can be saved even when they don't understand the reason that they actually came to Christ. And this is, this is the issue that we're dealing with here. Why do people come to Christ? What causes them to do that? And that's really the doctrine that divides us from other Baptists that see these things differently. Now, I think that we can say that synergism is bad doctrine, but that's not a damning error. Carried to its logical conclusion, I think it would be. But as one of their, one of their pastors said, you can't systemize theology, which is uh, their way of saying we don't care to revol resolve our inconsistencies. Now, the main point is that they confess that salvation is by God's grace alone. But their system doesn't actually account for the reason that one person is saved by God's grace alone, and another isn't saved. They can't account for that, but that happens to be another of the inconsistencies they don't care to resolve. So their system actually makes faith a work. But that, again, is another inconsistency that's left unresolved. Now, just to help you to understand, uh, I thought that this evening I might talk a little bit about this. Uh, where is it that we actually separate, or what is the issue that divides us about God's grace? So I think that we need to look at that issue that separates us. Our difference is what we call the doctrine of prevenient grace. They accept the doctrine of prevenient grace, and we do not. Well, you say, what is prevenient grace? Well, prevenient comes from a Latin term that means to come before. And I'll explain this as we go along. But the basic meaning of it is that prevenient grace is grace that comes before salvation, that enables the lost person to make a choice to believe in Christ if he so chooses, but it's not a grace that guarantees that he actually will choose Christ. Now, our position is that a person is radically altered. Everyone is radically altered by the fall. And in that fallen condition, we're left totally unable to respond to God in repentance and faith. That man is dead in trespasses and sin, and therefore being dead... He has to be brought to life in order to hear, understand, and believe the gospel. 
And once a person has been quickened to life, he's effectually drawn, and is infallibly drawn by God's grace to repent of his sins and to put his faith in Christ. And all that happens instantaneously. It's not a long process that you go through. It happens, doesn't happen over hours and days, or, or over hours and weeks, I should say. Uh, it, it's an instantaneous thing. Now, the initial call, when, when the gospel goes out and people first hear it, it might take a long time before a person actually believes the gospel, but at the point where the Holy Spirit begins to work in the heart, and he, and he turns that person and regenerates him, he brings him to repentance and faith. So you have regeneration, repentance, and faith that happen instantly. But the doctrine of prevenient grace sees that in a different way, and they say that repentance and faith are the result of regeneration, or in other words, regeneration comes after repentance and faith. And so many people that believe in provenient grace know that there's a problem here. There's a problem with inherent depravity. And they know that this is an issue that has to be solved before a person can believe in Christ. So what some, uh, some of them do is they change the meaning of dead in Ephesians 2.1 to help alleviate the problem. But that position actually is not thought out well enough to even be credible. Most people do understand that dead probably means dead. I mean, we have an idea of what dead means, and you have to go through a lot of mental gymnastics to get around what does dead mean. So you have many, and most of them, that think a little bit deeper on the subject than that, and so they take a, a more standard interpretation of it, that in the atonement of Christ, that he secured a type of grace that overcomes total inability. And so he puts man into a salvable state. He receives pre-grace or prevenient grace that enables him to believe. Now, according to them, all people, no matter who you are, you have this prevenient grace. You have a pre-salvation grace that God gives, even though you may not believe. Now, now just to let you know, and I don't mean to be disparaging to, to anyone by connecting anyone to others that believe this doctrine, but just to give you the, the history of it, uh, that doctrine is actually the brainchild of Roman Catholicism. Provenient grace comes out of Roman Catholic theology. So in short, what they say is that all people have been given a measure of grace before salvation that enables them to respond to the gospel. Now, in their position and in ours, we agree on total depravity, but we don't agree on total inability. They believe that every person can hear and believe without another enabling work of the Holy Spirit to make that happen, uh, they can, a person can learn the scriptures, he can hear the gospel, he can choose by human will alone that he wants to be saved. And so essentially, every person is enabled to believe, but not every person will believe. Now, we're not going to go too deeply into that because it's not the point of the lesson tonight. But let me just say this, that that contradicts what Jesus said in John six thirty seven. He said, all that believe are drawn by the Father, and all that are drawn do in fact come. In other words, the purpose of the Holy Spirit wooing the person in grace is to make sure that the person that he calls does in fact believe. The purpose of the calling is to save that person uh, so that when they're drawn by the Spirit, they don't resist the call. Now, the biggest hitch that you have in provenient grace is that it puts everyone into a hypothetical salvable state when in fact there's no place in Scripture that says that anybody or everybody 
is in a salvable state. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. But instead, what we find is the language of John chapter 6 and John chapter 10 and John 17, Ephesians 2 and Romans chapter 8 that are very clear about God's purpose in grace. Nowhere does the Bible say that all people have been put into a salvable state by pre-salvation or prevenient grace. And so you have to get really creative with that to, to get around all these other scriptures that teach a different position. Now the question about all of that is this, in, in, in regards to our lesson tonight. The question is, is that an unrecoverable error? And the answer to that is no. And that's because both systems teach that a person cannot be saved without God's grace. God's grace is the thing that is operable. But the difference in what we teach about grace will have an effect in other doctrines that we teach. And it'll, one of the things that it affects is methods of evangelism. So you have some that are more extreme in promoting decisional regeneration because the idea is that if God is not the one who persuades a person to believe that this comes as an act of his own will and God doesn't do any persuasion in that area, then somebody has to persuade and that becomes the preacher's job. And so that's why you have an invitation system now. This is why you have multiple verses of invitation and pleading stories and so on because the idea behind that is you must persuade people to believe now what we take our take on that is it's purely the work of the holy spirit to persuade people that's his job to do it not ours we preach the word the holy spirit does all the persuasion so there's some who say well if that's the case then how are people going to be saved if you don't give an invitation at the end of a sermon well, they'd be saved the same way they were for 1,850 years before anybody ever heard of an invitation. I mean, the invitation system is not very old at all. So people believed in Christ by hearing the gospel of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's work. That's his mission in regeneration to move the heart to respond to the gospel of Christ. So you have some people that are more extreme in their efforts to get decisions. Others are more moderate in that, and we can tolerate that. Uh, we can tolerate that. We can thank God that people get saved in those ministries. Uh, but you have others that are radical, like Charles Finney and like Jack Hiles. Those are people that we can't tolerate. Finney preached a false gospel. Jack Hiles preached one that wasn't just a half step behind him. So whenever you do this, whenever you skip over repentance and you make that equivalent to faith and you tell people that you don't really have to repent of all your sins you only need to repent of unbelief and when you tell people that it's not necessary uh, to have the lordship of christ to believe that then that's where we're going to part company we're going to have difficulty with that so that's just a little primer on the subject and just let me say this we don't have to be hostile about this we don't we don't uh have to be nasty i think that we are far more charitable in this area towards others than they are to us I mean, I've been called everything, heretic, uh, just about everything in the book. Although I still have friends that disagree with me on these doctrines. It doesn't alter our friendship at all. So I hope that none of you would take the comments that I make in the heat of passionate debate to be unkind or mocking. Uh, I'm just convinced on the subject, and I do wish others could see it in the way that I do. But at least I do know this much. If they would just care to sit down and listen to us and hear what we teach, they wouldn't do what they so often do, and that is to accuse us of things that we don't actually believe. That a lot of that goes on. We're told that we believe things that we don't believe. And if they would just hear us, 
they would find out that we have a very, very strong respect for God's Word. And they would never, ever accuse us of not believing that salvation is all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we want to give all the glory to Him for the salvation of our souls. But let me leave that part alone for now. Uh, we understand that there are degrees of error. Some of them are not serious enough to affect our salvation. But then some of them are. Some of them are very serious. So now I want to shift our focus to the next part. And we're going to talk about the doctrines engaged. What doctrines do we need to look at in determining serious error? Well, the first one would be the doctrine of salvation. And so to help you a little bit with the terminology here, this is called soteriology. The doctrine of salvation is soteriology. It comes from uh, the Greek word soteria, which means salvation. The root of that is soter, which means savior or preserver. And then the second part of the word is from logos, which means uh, word or means uh, study. So you put that together, you get the study of salvation. Now, just to uh, um, keep this in mind, that whenever you see O-L-O-G-Y at the end of word, ology, that means the study of. And so soteriology is the study of salvation. Theology is the study of God. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Hamartiology is the study of sin. Anthropology is the study of man and so on. So soteriology is what you believe about salvation. And I think we would all agree that's a very critical doctrine. What is the right way of salvation? Well, you can be close to the truth on this. Uh, but as they say, close only counts in horseshoes. And so you don't want to trust your, your soul to something that's close, but it's not close enough. Now, for illustration, I'd like for us to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. And uh, I read an article several weeks ago by Mike Riccardi that made it, some excellent observations on this passage, but his comments were very brief. So I want to expand on that because this, is a, this passage is a really good starting point to discuss serious doctrinal error. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul used some very strong language against some that were teaching serious theological error. So in the first chapter, in verse number 6, he said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you under the grace of Christ, uh, into the grace of Christ, unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now, you fasten your eyes there on the word accursed in verses 8 and 9. This is very serious stuff. Now, the error that Paul addresses here is serious enough for him to say that if anyone teaches this, let him be accursed. Now, that word is anathema. And the meaning of it is, would be just like this. Let that person go to hell. Now, Paul doesn't say that in the way that many of you say it. Because what he has in mind is the protection of poor people who have been led astray by false teachers. And he says, anyone who would do that, that would do that to the soul of a person, let that person go to hell. Let him be a curse for teaching a damnable heresy that would condemn the soul. Now, hold your place there in Galatians 1. Let me read to you from Jude 
uh, verses 3 and 4. Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude said that there are men who have crept into the church. What do you call somebody like that? You call him a creep. He crept into the church, so he's a creep. And these are people that come in by stealth. They're false teachers that are close to the truth, so close that it's hard to tell the difference. And at first, they probably came into the church unnoticed. They're slightly off. They're people that don't hit you full on with their heresy. They wait a while until you've been sucked in. So they creep in. They seem pretty good. And if you believe them, you're in danger of hell. Now Jude made it clear how serious that this is by making comparisons a little bit later in that chapter where he talks about or it compares them to dwellers in Sodom and also to evil angels. That's how serious this is when someone comes in with a false doctrine. Well, this is the very same thing that Paul has in mind in Galatians chapter 1. Doctrines can be close to the truth. And if you're not able to tell the difference and you can't discern between them, the result of that can be the soul being damned to hell. You can be in real trouble with that. Now, if you take a look at Galatians chapter 1, we see the kind of people that they are and who they are and what do you discover about them. Well, we have a term for them. They're called Judaizers. Uh, What does that mean? Well, they're not Jews in religion. These are actually... Jews that are professed Christians. And they have many, many things that are in common with you and me and with real Christians that were in the Galatian churches. And so if you ask them, what do you believe about the nature of God? Well, they would say, God is a trinity. God is, God is, exists in three persons that are co-equal and co-eternal. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, these aren't Gnostics, not like John was talking about in 1 John, what do you believe about Jesus? And they would say, well, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and we believe that he's both fully human and fully divine. Well, that's orthodox, isn't it? That's right down the line with the apostles' teachings in historic Christianity. Well, okay, now we've discovered that you're Trinitarian. You believe that Jesus is God. What do you believe that Jesus came to do? And they would say, well, we believe that Jesus died on the cross to bear the punishment of our sins, that he appeased God's wrath for us. What else did he do? He was crucified. And he was buried on the third day. He arose from the grave. And one of these days, he's coming back. And he's going to take everybody home that believes in him to be in heaven with him. They say, man, that's great. I mean, this sounds like people that I can sit down with. This sounds like somebody I can fellowship with. We can enjoy each other. We can call each other brothers in Christ. But what have I just described? Well, among other things, I've just described a Roman Catholic. He's orthodox in his faith on the Trinity. He's orthodox on the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. He's orthodox, at least somewhat, on substitutionary atonement. He's orthodox about the second coming. If you ask him, he'll tell you that people have to repent and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. He is so orthodox that some Catholics have orthodox in their name. Down the street from me, a mile, half, two miles, 
There's a Russian Orthodox church that uh, it's one of the few ones that are around, and so it attracts people from all over the Bay Area, and so they have hundreds of people that attend that church, and uh, they are Orthodox, or so they say. And Roman Catholics believe mostly the same thing as the Russian Orthodox do. They're no less Orthodox. So what do we need to do about this? Well, we have to be more discerning. We have to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, In my discussions with some who stop by here, Roman Catholics, for instance, that sometime will stop by the church and come in for some reason, and I have conversations with them, we go over these things. I talk to them about these things. And if you stop right there, you would think, oh, wow, you know, these are brothers in Christ. We can call them brothers in Christ. Well, this is the problem in Galatia. These are Judaizers, and they have some important doctrines that are right. They're very close in doctrinal agreement, but they have an issue that's important, that's wrong. So Paul would go a little bit further, and so he would ask, Do you believe that we are saved by faith? And they would say, Well, yes. We do believe that you're saved by faith. And he would say, well, that's good. Or we would say, that's good. It's good to believe that you're saved by faith. But then he asked a more pointing, a pointed defining question. What do you believe is the ground of saving faith? And now the wheels come off. Are we saved by faith alone? Or that is in the merits of Jesus and the merits of Jesus Christ? Is that how we're saved? Or are we saved by some righteousness that we do? Are we saved by the righteousness of Christ alone? Or are we saved by faith plus religious rights? Are we saved by faith plus obedience to the law? What is the basis of faith? Well, this is a very fine doctrinal distinction, isn't it? Is it by faith alone or faith plus? Well, the Judaizer says, you've got to get circumcision in there somewhere. It's faith plus the right of circumcision. That's why they're called Judaizers. Because they favored the old Jewish right of circumcision. They got a lot of stuff right, but they want to put circumcision in there and say you can't be saved unless you are circumcised. Now, essentially, that is the problem that Martin Luther faced in the 16th century. Now, he wasn't dealing with circumcision, but he was dealing with an error of the same kind. And so he looked at this. Uh, after studying Galatians, he began to see Paul's point. Is it faith alone that justifies, or is it faith plus something? And so Luther looked at Catholic doctrine. I mean, if you know the history of Luther, he was, a, he was a Catholic monk. So he looked at Catholic doctrine, looked at sacraments and penance and indulgences, and he concluded that the Apostle Paul would say to them, let them be accursed. Oh, they look close, but upon closer examination and asking the right questions, Luther found out that they were wrong on the most fundamental doctrine of all in the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of justification. Justification is actually the underpinning of the gospel itself. You have to be dead right on the doctrine of justification, or you can't be saved. You can't be six inches from the stake and count. You have to be a dead ringer, or you're going to be a dead sinner. And that's the way that you'll end up. So what did Paul say? Well, in verse 6, he said, here's the problem with this. That is a different gospel. Verse 7 says, it's not the gospel. Anything other than what he taught was not the gospel. And the error is so serious that it curses the teacher and 
the student. Now, what's the point of this? The point is that the error can be a very fine distinction. It can be subtle. It can look good on the surface. It can be a doctrine that's close. And that's what the devil does. Get the doctrine close and snow them. Fool them into believing the wrong thing and destroy them. Have you ever noticed that Mormons use this trick? When the elder comes to your door, he doesn't start talking to you about holy underwear. That's not his first thing that he talks about. He doesn't talk to you about going to live on a planet and become a god of your own planet. That's not where he starts. He doesn't even start with the Book of Mormon. He starts with the King James Bible. And he starts by saying, we are the church of Jesus Christ. And so what the Mormon does, he plucks people when they're green and silly, and then he leads them straight to hell. And that's the issue with correct doctrinal discernment. There are degrees of error. Some are slight, although every doctrine is important. Some errors are slight. They're not going to affect your soul. They're not even serious sometimes enough to affect our fellowship in the same church, as I've just said. We can have a difference of doctrine on some things. One of us is going to be wrong, obviously, but it's not a serious error. But there are some that are so serious that if a person believes them, he cannot be saved. And this is the problem. You've got to know which is which. Now, there's a lot more that we could talk about in the area of soteriology. I mean, this, this is critical doctrine. But I've, I think I've said enough here to make the point about this. And so we'll come back in the next message and we'll talk about some other areas of doctrine that are important that we must get right. Uh, the degree of error is permanent, uh, paramount, rather, and the doctrines engaged are fundamentals of the faith that must be rightly divided. We've got to get this thing right. Is it truth or is it error? Many, many times, the destiny of the soul depends on it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again tonight. We thank you for truths that we learned from it. Lord, we uh, praise you that you've opened up your word to give us understanding. And Lord, help us to grow in your word, study the word, to know it better, so that when we hear things that are wrong, uh, we're able to take our Bibles out and show that those things are wrong. And every one of us has that kind of responsibility to know our doctrine well enough that we're able to do it. Lord, help us in these next few weeks as we talk about many, many different areas of doctrine that are so critical, so important, that uh, you would show us your truth and help us to have a better understanding of it. And may, we, and may we, Lord, just retain the information that we hear, not just let it pass away and forget about it. This is extremely important for us to know, and this is why we spend time teaching it. So show us your word. Help us to make the right decisions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org